Hi, everyone. Welcome back to I Loved This Conversation, the podcast where I, Alex Salzberg, a creative person, talk to other creative people about what they're currently going through in their creative lives. I'm recording this at my desk in Boston. I live at a very busy intersection, and there's like mechanics right across the street, and a restaurant, and a market, and um, it kind of sounds like if you're doing like background sound for like a cheesy movie about a city, there's like, hey, I'm walking here, honk, honk, go fix the car. That That's what it would sound like. That's pretty good, right? Um, and normally I like close all the windows, and even then some noise gets through, and I get like really tense and anxious every time a truck is idling outside or someone yells and um you know what it's a nice day and i'm just gonna leave the windows open and not think about it and i know that's bad uh audio form and my brother who uh, helps me mix this is gonna be pissed but you know what adam it's an exercise in my own letting go and just being calm and just letting go of control over the sound in my neighborhood and it's just what it is so if you hear Someone being like, hey, uh, walking with a pizza, and then honking and a truck idling. That's okay, because I'm okay with it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Today's guest is Anthony Marquette. I'm so excited to talk with him because he is the founder of the Pixels and Polygons Animation School in the Boston area, in addition to being an animator and artist himself. It's been a good week. I'm still pretty buried in projects and working a lot. But I've also had a chance to spend a lot of time with other artists. I had a really nice coffee with some other animators who run their own animation business, their own studio. And man, it's so important to especially seek out the people who are doing as close as possible. Everyone's got their own path, but as close as possible, your path in the moment. Because nothing beats talking to people who really understand what you're going through. And then I also was lucky enough to see Julia Mark, former podcast guest, singer-songwriter, who, if you listen to that one, you know I'm a huge fan of. She was in town to play in Somerville, Massachusetts, and she was also accompanied by another musician friend of mine, Joanna Schubert. It sounds so basic, but I cannot overstate how much it fills me up just to see other artists who, like, made something. And in Julia's case, it was an album. And then, of course, the set list for this show and and putting together this show, which had special guests and her dad came up and played saxophone. It was awesome. It really, really fills up my soul. I know that's like a deep way of just saying that it was fun, but it's more than that. And I think that's something a lot of us lost during the pandemic. It's something that many of us have trouble finding in our own cities, even busier cities like Boston. But you've got to seek that out. Just seeing that Julia made an album, got up on stage, performed it, and created an experience for all of us. I'm not a musician, but that made me want to do the same thing with my art. Create community, create experiences, and just make something from nothing, because that's really what we're all trying to do, right? Anyway, I don't know if that was deep or... I'm okay. I'm okay, folks. I'm not gonna lose it at how loud my neighborhood is. I don't know if that was deep or anything, but let's talk about Anthony Marquette. As I said, Anthony Marquette founded a school, which I'm so impressed by. Um, He's someone who really has so many interesting things to say about art education. We also talk about his own journey, balancing personal life, family life with his work, 
and we talk about his experience in academia. This was just a cool experience. I recorded this at Anthony's school at Pixels and Polygons, which is near where I live in Boston. And maybe you can kind of hear it on this, but he and I, we'd known each other a little off and on, but this was the first time we really hung out. And dare I say, at risk of Anthony rejecting me by feeling differently, I feel like we became friends. And I feel like you can hear this. And Anthony was so generous to me in this conversation and letting me express my opinions and my feelings and my background. And because of that, this is a great episode if you want to get to know me. If you want to think of me as a a faceless journalistic interviewer, um, this might not be your cup of tea, but you're going to learn a lot about Anthony and a lot about me here. And I got to say, after this episode ended, he and I stuck around and talked for at least another hour. And I'm sorry I didn't record it because it was fun and interesting, but not everything has to be on record. Actually, you can kind of hear at the tail end of the episode, we kind of go off topic talking about weird cartoon stuff. And that's kind of a taste of, of our continued conversation after the podcast. Anyway, can you tell I loved this conversation? I think this one is more swearing than usual, so uh, if you have small kids in the car and you don't want them to hear that, just listen later or something. So that's it. I'm excited to talk to our guest, so let's meet him and hear his connection to me. My name is Anthony Marquette, and I met Alex at Animatic Boston some number of years ago. (laughs) How long ago would you say that was? I think, I mean, you started coming around when I started, which I think at this point was about seven years ago. Hard to believe, but that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I'm going to open up top with a big question. Anthony, what is something that you are going through currently in your creative life and or where your creative life overlaps with the rest of your life? I'm so overloaded with uh, projects, Mm -hmm. preparation to teach in an art school and a busy personal life. What's become of my brain is uh, that it's just a mushy, unrecognizable pile of, you know, neurons. And, um, it's quite hilarious. <laughs> I feel fortunate, truly, to get to mm-hmm. do all of the different types of work that I do. But they can compound and they can eat uh, too much time. And where I'm learning, and I think we all have uh, over the past few years, that perhaps we we're treating some things as more important and maybe our priorities weren't in exactly mm-hmm. in order. Oh yeah. Since reevaluating that and really discovering where the the source of my happiness is, I would like to spend less time working in general despite loving my work. So personally, I'm working on a very cool project on animation involving astronauts. That's about all oh, I can cool. say. Yeah. And that that's um, separate from Pixels and Polygons, which we'll talk about. That's uh, correct. Yeah. Is that a freelance thing or? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, so cool. I'll be just one part of a larger production. And yeah, I run a small production studio and uh, tend to collaborate with really amazing clients and other artists. So really fortunate getting to the opportunity to do such fun work. Um, but right now, um, balancing that with a graduating class here, mm-hmm. uh, an incoming mm-hmm. class next week, and the news that uh, a second baby's on the way. Ah, congrats. <laughs> Thank you very much. And the first is only one years old. So oh, wow. So she's uh, quite the handful, you know, already. <laughs> so... We're definitely going to get to talking about the school. Sure. A lot of questions about that. But I want to ask, when you hit that point, you talked about, I think that your brain is melting. There was some sort of liquidification of your brain. Yeah, it's it's so bad that um, I didn't say it well, and I don't even recall it, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, so you started answering this just now, but how how does that affect your your life? Like, when when you hit that overwhelmed point, what are, like, the symptoms for you, I guess? Because I've 
just to connect with you, I've, mm-hmm. I've been in kind of that overwhelm for right. the last few weeks too. Um, yeah. So I, I am curious, what are the symptoms of your overwhelm? Like how does it present itself? I would hope others would describe it as only mild crouchiness, but mm. you know, um, you do, you, you run out of energy and you tend to lose patience, unfortunately. Um, and sadly that tends to manifest with the people you care about the most. You yeah. Know? But they know how to push your buttons too. I'm only <laughs> kidding. Um, the the truth is, I I think I manage it well overall. I drink too much coffee, and and I'm just gonna spill my guts here and say that I often take it out on myself as well. So mm-hmm. if I've worked 16 hours, I'll say, uh, yeah, there's only one cure for this type of exhaustion, and it's a whole pizza. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think um, what I would like to find balance for is just a little bit of uh, time for my own well-being. Yeah, yeah. Because when I was younger, I learned to work like a lunatic. Uh, and often that work involved expending energy in a physical way. And, and now that the majority of what I do is at a desk right, um, right. and I'm uh, approaching 40, it's time to figure out where to squeeze in that little bit of extra time to ensure that I have a long and quality life right. to the best of my ability. But also in my past experience from taking better care of myself, being better at everything else, managing my time better with everything else. So I think it's a, um, a snowball of positivity that compounds and, you know, Maybe right after this, I'll go have a salad. Yeah. yeah. Probably not, but. <laughs> but it sounds like, and I think this is really common. I, I struggle with this too. It's like, it seems so twisted when you say it out loud, but that like, we're like too much work. So I won't take care of the human body that does the work. It's true. <laughs> but I, I think it's tough. And I found, you know, I'm, I'm in a period now where in addition to all of this overwhelm, I am also trying to get back on a wave of prioritizing my my health and exercise and, and things like that. I mean, it sounds like you already have some of the tools. You said past couple of years, you've been on, on the journey of balancing things more with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, what have been some of the ways you've been able to bring that balance in? Well, I have to say I'm very fortunate to have, you know, an amazing wife at home who uh, supports me. So, you know, if, and everything from just encouragement to being someone who I can bounce ideas off of. And you know, um, that is a time saver, having someone who's truly trustworthy and intelligent (laughs) enough to help you with big decisions. Yeah. Um, And so I have to give credit where it's due and say that by myself, I don't think I would have found any balance. I think that when I had more time and when the ideas are just so numerous that they overwhelm you is when I tended to find myself getting distracted scrolling through social media, for Mm. instance. Whereas when I have a manageable task list, I can can approach it with focus. As like a creative, self-employed, ambitious, uh, I wouldn't, I don't like to use the word workaholic, but someone who works a lot yeah, and works a lot, not just working a lot mindlessly, but working a lot towards goals and dreams, which, which I feel like you fall in that category too. True. Yeah, I have a lot of, they're far off fears, but I have a lot mm-hmm. of vague fears that like, like, oh, once I, once I have a kid, I'll, I won't be able to work anymore. I won't be able to do that stuff. But then I, I've observed a lot of friends of mine and family members have mm-hmm. kids. Right. And I've observed that those of them who have kids but are also, you know, creative business people or whatever, they actually almost work more efficiently because they have less time. Have you found that to be the case? Completely. With the baby? Completely. Because neglecting what you need to do when you're the only person who pays for it is easier than neglecting what you need to do when the most important person or people in the world Mm. are the ones who pay for it. So it feels infinitely more selfish to waste time when it's not just my time. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. I have found myself dicking around and, you know, not doing what it is I need to be doing. And, um, I don't know, 
I wouldn't call it guilt, but mm -hmm. I would call it something equally powerful that just um, effectively slaps me upside the head. So it's essentially, I mean, this is oversimplifying something that's probably subconscious, but it's essentially like you start to get distracted, but then you think of the stakes and your and your daughter, daughter, right? right? Yes, yeah. you got it. Your daughter, uh, and it kind of you snap back to. it's, yeah. it's the Homer Simpson. Do it for her. That's Ma exactly Maggie right. Simpson. Yeah, yep. Don't forget, uh, you'll be here forever. <laughs> do it for her was a much better sign to have yeah. on the wall. And the other thing is how much I truly enjoy spending time with her. Yeah, I, it's 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 just not a competition. Whatever is was on the internet that I habitually right. just found myself staring at. It's not one millionth as cool as changing my baby's diaper. Right. You know, that's beautiful. Uh, obviously, it, it's hard to follow that up, that beautiful <laughs> sentiment. Up. I want to jump into the school because a, a big reason I was really interested in talking to you and something I really admire about you is that there's no other way to say it. Like, holy shit, you started a school. <laughs> like, Thanks, man. And I say that because like I've, I've been an adjunct for off and on for maybe, God, probably seven years at this point. And... Um, there are things I, I love about more traditional academia and things I don't, but I'm always like fantasizing, like not about necessarily starting school, but I definitely go down that rabbit hole of being like, wait, there's gotta be alternatives to this traditional BFA art school. This isn't working. We could improve this and whatever. And then I'm just full of hot air, but you <laughs> did it. So these are big questions, but sure. how did you do it? And right. more importantly, why did you do it? I could uh, speak for forever about all of this. Go, and go for it. Thank you. Um, I could listen forever. Okay, very good. Uh, first, I, what I want to say is just jumping back a half a step is that um, my entire time in, in academia, I experienced exactly what mm -hmm. you experienced. The... Um, being of two minds and really um, admiring everything about the institutions and what having a dedicated place devoted to learning yeah. really represents and to have this these centuries old traditions in some of our schools here yeah. you know it's it's unbelievable and then to watch what I had some expertise in being taught very poorly for far too high a price mm -hmm. was um, making it harder for me to sleep at night. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing is, truthfully, um, I did not set out to start a school. The school where I cut my teeth as a teacher mm -hmm. was Boston University Center for Digital Imaging Arts. And um, I had a wonderful experience there. And as I, um, I, I went from teacher's assistant to freelance animator, amassed some experience and was eventually invited to teach. I always wanted to. After a few years of personal success and some some changes in the uh, department, I actually found myself as the uh, program director, the the animation program director. And um, that school, its its actual relationship with Boston University was somewhat superficial. Mm -hmm. Is the best way I can put it. And those in charge didn't make the greatest decisions. They expanded to a second campus down in D.C. And I shortly thereafter became the animation program director of two campuses. Oh, weird. Yeah. In entirely different yeah. cities yep. in 10 hours apart yep yeah i'm just gonna chalk it up to maybe mismanagement mm -hmm. but uh as that school went down it brought this one with it yeah so they they slammed their doors shut there was a brief period where someone took it over and it was called the center for digital arts that place tanked in, yeah. in a very short amount of time and it was then that 12 students in my animation program were left high and dry oh wow yes so uh i was the one in the open houses making promises and i had every intention of yeah. fulfilling those promises uh to teach them hey everything i know or whatever i could in nine months but when when the school closed its doors i asked the students if 
they would consider, you know, just coming and studying with me. And what we would do is um, crowdfund, cobble together a little classroom with some yeah. workstations and things like that. Uh, we were able, with the support of, you know, friends, family, and the larger community, uh, get enough to cover rent, some some adequate PCs, and um, even some help from other instructors with whom I'd worked. And that just went really, really, really well. Um, I was here doing that um, in the evenings and on weekends. And simultaneously, well, I needed to make my ends meet. So I took another position. I'm not going to say at what school. And it was quite soul crushing, in fact. Mm. So I wasn't um, a professor at the other school. I was in charge of the department from a technology education and industry point of view. Uh, it was a unique role and one that I felt that I was well suited for, but um, actually uh, quite a traumatic experience. Yeah. Because perhaps I had the contrast of a thriving, vibrant educational right. space contrasting with a stale, outdated, yeah. neurotic space. Yeah. It's something that I haven't fully come to terms with or gotten closure on. You're experiencing simultaneously the full freedom of like, I call the shots, this it's a lot of pressure, but mm -hmm. like these students education is in my hands, mm -hmm. but I get to bring these fresh ideas to the table. That's it. And then you're at another institution where you have uh, probably a million roadblocks, nothing but obstacles. And I don't want to suggest that that's true of all schools. I mean, right. Alex, you're teaching, obviously <laughs> they're amazing people who are hardworking. They're amazing professors. They're amazing students and they're amazing administrators yeah. in, in a lot of our colleges. But, um, the model isn't appropriate for fields that change quickly. Man, yeah, you hit the nail on the head okay, with that. Well, yeah. for, first, I want to say that really resonated with me, both from my college experience, which was mostly positive. Um, I, I got a lot out of it, but I was in a BFA animation mm -hmm. program. And I was there in 2004 to 2008, which was like the cusp of A, it was a weird time when everyone was like, 2D animation is dead and no True. one will ever do it again, right. which is really funny now. When yeah, I agree it, with you completely. So much 2D animation. Yes. Uh, but then also it was a time when um, our professors were very analog and our students were very digital. Mm -hmm. um, and I had some great professors, but they were very analog and yes. they were very digital. And so uh, that made me think of that. But then also I, I feel that continues to be the case. So I'm curious if you can speak more to that. And also maybe some of the things that you, as you built this school, Pixels and Polygons, uh, that you've implemented to try and uh, counteract that. You know, we operate on a budget like any other school does. And as a nonprofit, it's not an enormous budget. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to student materials, hardware, software, those come first. But really, when it all comes down to it, um, the schools should not be building their classroom and their learning structure at a scale that can't be flexible when necessary. Because otherwise, what you're doing is you're charging students a pretty penny to teach them something that's going to soon cease to be useful or maybe already has in right. some cases. So while I'm empathetic from a, a director's point of view of, you know, <laughs> needing to manage those things, I have to imagine that's what the 7,000 administrators are for, right. figuring out how to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So who are all those people? <laughs> I think when we start new projects, some of the fuel we're getting is from what we're working against. The thing mm -hmm. we're saying, I'm going to do better than that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it differently than that. I think they've been doing that for too long and I want to do this. I don't think that fuel can carry you too far beyond Correct. the beginning. Spite can only get you so far. <laughs> but I do think spite is actually, 
if not a necessary ingredient in a new project, it's like an interesting one. It can help. So I'm curious, like other not not to turn this into just like let's shit on other schools because that's Thank not you. and and it's not my intention either. It's not it's not yep. mine either. And I um, but I do I am curious just for you for this project. Mm-hmm. What were you kind of working against? So first and foremost, I had the motivation of the the students' well being is, mm-hmm. is directly in my hands. So yeah. um, in terms of a new project, um, I don't think I needed the spite. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't actually start uh, working at that other school, the challenging one, until, you know, after getting this rolling. Everything was so fresh, so new, and so fun with the first group. Yeah. Yep. But I'll tell you where I soon discovered that I would need uh, some other source of energy <laughs> and inspiration was getting the school licensed. Mm. Yep. So here in the in the hub of higher education, let's use another example, you know, let's say in the petroleum field where, you know, for a long time, alternative energies couldn't get off the ground because of the entrenched interests mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. i felt like uh i felt like the first solar panel manufacturing company trying to you know uh, get people to notice me in a sea of shells and and exons right yeah. right wow yeah. okay so the the process of obtaining a school license was so cumbersome that i honestly could conclude nothing else but that it was meant to be um an insurmountable obstacle unless right. unless of course you're an institution who can hire you know a half dozen people to yeah. to go at it um full time but i persevered through that and i think that's where some of the spite came in handy the the fact that it had gone so well with those first students made me realize that we were onto something and i wanted to keep it alive and i wanted it to be legitimate enough in the eyes of prospective students and in many cases their families mm. that they would um take the leap and trust us to to do to stand by our promises and uh for some reason or another there's enough you know um belief in traditional institutions that us having that formal yeah. school license was in the minds in, of many of our early students, you know, a good thing. For the most part, people don't even ask anymore, and nor did they care because I think student work speaks for itself and right. I think success stories speak for themselves. I think that's cool. And I would love to see things shift that way. I had a great experience in a BFA program for animation, but the only people who ever ask if I have a BFA are other colleges that I teach at. Right. No studio or client has ever asked what my degree is, unless they're just curious, but they just right. look at my work. Maybe in a broader issue culturally with like art school is that like in an ideal world, animators could go to whatever program had the best student work, regardless of what kind of certificate or degree they got. Right. But I think there's just some sort of cultural thing. And I get it. I think like I was lucky enough to grow up in a family that encouraged art, but I imagine there's many students who um, it's an uphill battle just to justify going into that career field. For sure. Man, you need that certificate if you're going to like. Right get your parents to support you going to school for it. And there and there is value in art school as well because for someone, you know, I I would in a in an ideal world we would all have some f- formal exposure throughout our childhood yeah. and get an early start on it and spend the the necessary years with the ideas. But for those who weren't fortunate enough like you said, college is a wonderful environment to spend years thinking about why you yeah, know, the why of art and and as well as getting the guidance from the trained hands and minds, you know, that have been doing it for a long time that um, maybe you've been lacking your whole life. So yeah. it's an amazing environment when it's the focus. But I can't help but see the business of schools, uh, you know. And, yeah, and, you've um, seen the sausage get made. Yeah, exactly right. So when when you're in those meetings and you hear the students spoken of, you know, in ways that's bordering on dehumanizing Mm. the way that, you know, you would imagine an industry fat cat talking about their (laughs) shareholders or clients or, you know, whatever. So, boy, I don't really mean to um, just, 
you know, be a be a wet blanket about it. But some something's off. I'm really I'm really enjoying this conversation. If I can uh, speak of the conversation in the present, because I feel like would you say you love this conversation? I would say I love it, and hopefully in the past tense, I will have loved it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Sorry. And then you wink to the camera <laughs> in the credits. Well, Perfect. No, what, what I love about this conversation so far is that I feel like I have a lot of opinions and feelings and thoughts about art education just through my experience but it's all emotional and my like expression of it is the equivalent of like a guy like ranting at a bar but then you seem to agree with a lot of what i feel but you actually have the knowledge and and life experience to explain, explain i was it worried and, that i came across solutions. like a drunk guy at a bar no no okay, you're good. i don't know what the metaphor is for you you're a professional educator who knows stuff which is not a metaphor that's just what you are and i'm still the guy at the bar I want to run this this thought by you sure. that I think you you kind of touched on. Um, something I feel, I felt this in my education. I feel it at some of the schools I've worked for. And I don't think it's like anyone's doing this on purpose. But I feel there's a confusion specifically in animation school. I think it's the nature of animation as an art form. Because animation is such a Venn diagram of commercial and artistic. I think animation programs seem, at least the ones I've, I've crossed paths with, seem confused sometimes are we training to be an artist mm -hmm. with an art practice, you know, more of a fine artist, or are we training to be a worker? That's a loaded term, but a, a per worker in an industry. And I think there's confusion in how schools are marketing themselves. There's right. confusion in how the schools are putting together curriculums. There's confusion in the um, different faculty student that schools are hiring. And there's just confusion in the, the students themselves and what they want out of it, um, which is not their fault. They're, they're young of course. students just like listening to people tell them where to go. So like what I always say is like, if you go to engineering school, you know that the goal is to get a job right after. That's right. And if you go to painting school, you probably know that you're not going to traditionally get a job right after. Now you're going to have work hopefully. Mm -hmm. and, and that involves some of the skills you learn, but you're going to be an artist. Right. And I, I, I didn't say that mockingly. Like, that's no, my, not at all. My dream is to but go like paint of by course, a seaside. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yes. I would need a digital tablet, but same. You yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm curious, like, just to throw that thought out of on course. the table and, and what that made you think it, of. It does resonate. And I'm going to go from something we talk about in class quite often to um, how how I can sleep at night now. Mm -hmm. We We often distinguish between what it means to be an artist and what it means to be a production artist, mm. you know, and um, we speak of this not only personally, you know, what that means for each student, but also how they might choose to pursue a career in art. There are some fine artists, there are some contemporary artists who uh, have managed to establish such a significant following on social media, for instance, that they can sell commissions and and mass produce and not only pay their bills, but in some case thrive. That's uh, something that historically has been available to so few artists that I do think when we talk about something very, very positive about being constantly connected to the internet, the ability to sell your work directly mm -hmm. without any sort of publisher or anything like that yeah. is, a, is a huge gift. Yeah, I mean, I, I built my business in the internet age right. through Craigslist. Right, which right. <laughs> I'll and talk about if anyone ever interviews me, but yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm gonna ask, um, what was that like? Basically, I left college in a little bit of that confusion. because And, I, and 2008 was a pretty hectic time. <laughs> 2008 uh, was, uh, yeah, there was, 
not a good economy then, which I didn't even really fully understand. Let's say it, Alex. It was a bad economy. No, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Hey, I don't want to hurt George Bush's feelings. (laughs) Hurt him. No, uh, you know, no, I know, I know you are. And he's he's painting now. So isn't that unbelievable? I I saw some of his paintings, but let's not talk about George W. Bush. I don't want to platform him right now, but uh, (laughs) exactly. What was I saying? Oh yeah. So I got out and I think had in school been leaned much more artist than I'd done some freelance work in school, but I was all about like wanting to make my stuff and my art and, and all that, which right. is great. I wasn't super prepared to work at a studio. I applied to a few studios. Um, and I think my reel just straight up wasn't good enough. It wasn't nothing, nothing to overthink. You there. wouldn't just, be the first, you know, yeah. graduate to not have a, a of yeah, course, professional yeah. demo. And, and, and by the way, that's not my school's fault. There were plenty of people who graduated my school who had great reels that were good for studios. What my reel was great for was freelance, like, corporate small jobs mm-hmm. and stuff in 2008 Craig, is craigslist they're still around there right? is still a craigslist it's mostly used for you know um murder uh, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah if you're like what is craigslist and the, you google it the second the word that comes up is craigslist murders killer which yeah. actually the worst part about that is i be- i think it's him the craigslist killer's lawyer's last name is the same as mine salzburg so mm-hmm. uh i believe it it wasn't me i did not <laughs> defend him and i will not defend him but i will defend i will the one thing I have in common with him is that I used Craigslist to... <laughs> I will defend Craigslist, but not murders. The one thing I have in common is I used Craigslist for my own business. I would just search every Craigslist um, in every state, and I'd search the word animation, yeah. animator, cartoon, and I would email people just all the time. That led to building a freelance business that now does not use Craigslist. But right. I think I think there's still like one or two of my clients are still hangers on from that era, which is interesting. And I want to commend you for the hustle because that's <laughs> exactly you. what needs to be done. You know, and maybe the exact method is different today, but that's a big part of what we do here at the school is we, we just had several weeks covering exactly how to find your audience, Mm -hmm. you know, and that means as an artist, you know, narrowing your focus at times, especially again, as a production artist, let's say it's in 3D animation, for instance, there's so many disciplines within that, that we, you know, we, we want to make sure that students know that having a specialization and a high concentration of knowledge in one of them is really essential in most of the large studios, which Mm. is, I think where a lot of folks dream about working Um, and you're not going to appeal to them unless you really dig in and then the next step, which is putting yourself out there and seeking the opportunities. Yeah. You know, so um, if I may jump back to how I sleep at night, yeah, knowing that uh, it's a somewhat saturated industry. Yeah. It's an enormous industry with many, many, many applications, but it's, there's no shortage of talent out there. Right. You know, so um, I've, I've sat with the question, you know, there, this is my area of expertise and I don't make any empty promises to students. I say, I'll teach you everything I need to know. And myself and other members of our faculty will share everything we know about how to find success in this field. And we have a decent track record doing it, but it doesn't work out for everyone. It's not the same as going to school for engineering. And, you know, um, I'm sure there are bad engineers, Yeah, but you know, it's, it's not as subjective, let's just say as, Mm -hmm. as something like art. Absolutely. And, And so, it hinges on a very major part of how we operate here. We just charge so little tuition and we yeah. we help the students complete their education without going into debt, without taking out a loan, that if the worst were to occur and they didn't land that job, they have a really cool hobby and I haven't harmed them in any way. Wow. Okay. So I love everything you said because something I, I did want to talk about 
which you, you've really hit on every, you've probably answered the question I was about to ask, but like something I feel a lot as a teacher um, is you get as a teacher, you have a wide variety of students. And I'd say 99% of my students love animation. Right. A s- still large percentage loves animating, but there are some who don't. And even in that percentage who love animating, there's some students who, and by the way, I never like to rule out that someone will eventually get there, but at that point, sure. don't have that proactiveness that is required in a very subjective and crowded industry like right. animation. As a teacher, I think what I sometimes struggle with is I never, ever, ever want to be a gatekeeper right. as a teacher or a person. Agreed. I always want to be like, you want to do that? Yes. Yeah. How can I help you? Yep. But, and maybe this is, this is where you kind of answered the question with pixels and polygons. When I'm teaching at a institution, sometimes I'm looking at a student and I could say like, okay, I shouldn't push the student through this class, but it's not because I want to stop their career. Of course. It's because I don't want them to go into debt. Of course. Just because I'm saying like, good enough, you right. know, expressing this awkwardly, but basically like find, I have struggled with like finding that line between like, I never want to be a gatekeeper. Right. But I also don't want to, you said, I want to sleep at night. <laughs> right. I don't want to be part of a system always where I'm just like, you know, pushing someone through. But then at the same time, I took school somewhat seriously, but a lot of my skills came later and Mm -hmm. a lot of my proactiveness came later. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like, you know, I wouldn't want a teacher to rule me out. Of course, of course. But it's so expensive. It's it's a really, it really is. (laughs) Uh, It's a very complex idea that you're expressing. And teaching is something that um, I think deserves just a little moment you know, here to help non-teachers understand how much time you spend thinking about things that are invisible to the rest of the world. Yeah. Like a student's future well-being. Yeah. You know, and, and there's no grade and there's no attendance. There's no roster. There's no software trick. There's nothing that you could do in executing the on paper purpose of your job that could ever touch the significance of the part that only you suffer with. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which is um, a person's trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, You're a part of their life. That's right. And in some cases, a significant part. So here I have a direct say in in admissions, obviously. Mm -hmm. And we do our very best not to be be exclusive in in that if a person doesn't show up with a beautiful portfolio, well, we're not going to exclude them for that because if they had that already, they wouldn't need to be here. Even a lousy previous academic track record is not an exclusion. What we're looking for is earnestness, you know, first and foremost. And in the few times that I have worked with a student um, early on. I've I've laid out my concerns in advance and I've said, you know, I think that we should have an ongoing conversation about whether you're hitting our expectations, right. our, our baseline expectations for what you need to do to succeed. And um, where that's been the case, we've had a, a mixed bag of success. Some students need that little kick in the ass and, yeah. and embrace it. And then when you surround them with people who are dead serious about this stuff and love it and excel and kind of, you know, maybe knock them down a peg, they're hopefully going to then be able to find uh, the spite or whatever it was in yeah. their past that yeah. would uh, would then in there motivate <laughs> them. But for some of the students, you were right all along. Yeah, And it's not that they may not one day completely take a 180 and, you know, and start just shaming us all yeah. with their talent, right, you know, right. and their, and their genius. But, um, at that time in that place, you're a mature, intelligent person and you can assess, you know, whether a person is trying, whether they care. And I'm curious which parts of what I'm going to say you relate to, 
I've been teaching in some form since I was like 16. Like I was a camp counselor, but I would teach the little animation class mm-hmm. at the camp and, and do a- after school and whatever. But I did not go to school to teach. I think of teaching as a big part of my career, but I my identity is not necessarily like I'm a, a traditionally trained educator. Uh, but I think you're a natural teacher. Right. I do too. I actually think I'm a very good teacher, but I think what's... what's very hard- humble too. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think I think what's, what's hard for me because... My ego is not tied up in like how well I honor teaching as like the art of teaching. Right. My ego is only invested in how well my students do. And right. I, it may, that maybe makes me sound like a hero. I don't even mean it that way. No, I mean, I, it's I think, challenging. I think it's a really important distinction. It really yeah. is. We're, we're relatively informal here. And I've shunned a lot of what I was told was necessary. And I've discovered things that yeah. you would never think are difference makers. And ultimately, their experience and, and their success is the yardstick. Your education background is, I think, less, quote unquote, traditional than mine. Like, You're absolutely I, right. I grew up in Wayland. I grew up in the suburbs. Go to college, go to college. I went to college, got a BFA. Like, mm-hmm. it was very standard. I had, I had a very, very good um, early education. It was in Roxbury. I went to the Ralph Waldo Emerson Elementary School, uh, uh, where my mother served lunch. And because she worked there, I got to attend kindergarten in the morning and the afternoon session. I have to say, having twice as much time in class at three and a half and four years old, I, was, I actually got a very young start on mm. my education. Um, and then seeing every lesson and hearing every story twice, I can't even begin to estimate the value of that. That's but I'm really super grateful yeah. for it. By the time I got to elementary school, once more, it was a small... Um, school where I had some some great and some not so great teachers, but the quality of that time in early childhood development and then in elementary school, talk about a responsibility. Look, by the time I get an 18 or a 25 or a 35 year old, <laughs> in many ways, they're already molded. People can change and people can change in profound ways, mm. but in terms of capacity, right? Um, I think I think as a culture, we could be, there's no limit to how much time we could spend talking about the importance of early childhood development. Right. And I can, I can definitely guess which bills you support. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can. Absolutely. In junior high school, let's just say some things happened and it set me on a non-traditional course through the education system. I earned a GED rather than a high school diploma taking classes at 16. So the importance of alternative educational opportunities are very near and dear to my heart. Yeah. I uh, started taking classes at UMass at 16. I did okay. You know, I was writing half decent papers. um, But what the hell did I know about, you know, being in that environment and in that space? And I was was pretty isolated. So after working for a few years, I did um, resume college at night. And um, community college did the trick for me. And it was actually a pursuit that followed that, that I decided to go learn animation and um, digital art in general. So yeah, there's no sticker to put on my rear windshield for whatever the <laughs> hell that was. You know what right, I mean? But right. I definitely um, got a lot of views at a lot yeah. of different types of schools and uh, types of schools that run the gamut with respect to the the community that they're in. And, right. you know, the location of this school is in a somewhat affluent neighborhood. But I want it to be clear that, you know, we welcome students from all walks of life. And and the most important part of our mission is to make sure that the tuition is not an obstacle that anyone who wants to attend can, because there are some students who 
indebt themselves to go to college and then they have to deal with that later. But there are many for whom it's still just not an option. You know, right. there are guaranteed loans, but maybe your grades were terrible or maybe you had to drop out of high school. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. No one's narrative is as linear as I'm going to like wrap up with a bow, but there seems to be such a parallel between your experience having what I'm going to use this word because this is the word my, my like deeply programmed, like Wayland brain says, mm-hmm. like these alternative I'm putting quotes, de- sure. degrees that you got and then being the founder of a school that provides a quote unquote alternative mm-hmm. to traditional art school. Right. Yeah. There's just no way that in hindsight, you know, reflecting on that unusual educational experience that um, I could have done it in a straight line. You know, yeah. I've, I've meandered and I've roamed a serpentining path, but um, at, the, at the core of it is a love of learning still to this yeah. day. My love of learning is fed by my love of teaching. Every yeah. moment in the classroom is beneficial to, to the people at the front and the back of the room. And uh, yeah, I would, I would spend every moment not with my family in a classroom if I could. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we jump into a, a lightning round? Let's do um, it. Uh, I'm calling the sequel with you because word I have... A hundred thousand <laughs> branching topics I want to talk about with you. Awesome. So if you're listening to this and you're like, Alex, why didn't you ask Anthony about blah, blah, blah? I'm with you. I, wa- I want to Thank do that, you. but uh, we'd, we'd be here all night. Um, and I want to say it's been a blast and I'd be happy to come back, do a part two, three, four, twelve. Well, all right. Let's not get crazy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. So our, uh, our lightning round, our first question is... What is something you learned the hard way, but you would be happy for people if they could just learn it the easy way, didn't have to go through all that, and just like hear it from you right now on the podcast, and boom, they learned it? I would say uh, how to be a little diplomatic and exist in many different spaces and be able to read the room and understand um, the slight variations in culture and different professional settings and uh, social settings. Mm. Took me a long time to become proficient and just understanding how to, you know, conduct yourself. Right. Depending on where you are and with whom. If someone wanted to try to learn that the easy Ooh. way, what what might be the first step to making it a little easier to learn that now? I'll say I think a lot of the young folks that I meet have an advantage um, over me and that they're, um, most of the young people I meet today are very empathetic. Man, I noticed the same thing. Yeah. Yep. And so I think that's a huge advantage. At the same time, many of them are somewhat insular. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they they have uh, maybe a different path to finding that sort of understanding and maybe in some ways a harder one because of how much less in-person interaction they had than I did. And and I'm imagining a very young kid today who spent half or all of their education remote. You know what I mean? Now, all of a sudden, communication occurs through text or cameras. That may be a disadvantage that they're up against. I don't know that Zoom quite... Yeah, there is just something about where we are right now talking to each other that we can understand what the other person understands in a glance. Really, what it comes down to is just spending time with people listening and um, trying to imagine what it's like being in their shoes. But then there are a lot of other unspoken rules that I think I don't even know how I learned to pay attention to them, but I'm glad that I did. 
Yeah. And maybe I forget or maybe I'm tired <laughs> and maybe I don't do exactly what you're supposed to do. I don't know the first thing about salad forks, but you know, when it, <laughs> when it comes to like a, a company or an organization's culture, just understanding when it's appropriate to be your most honest self and when it's appropriate to dial it back and, and kind of be what they need you to be in a moment. Right. That's so interesting. And also, yeah, why is the salad fork the shorter fork? When you're eating a salad, a long fork is good because you can get like one of each vegetable. You can get on a the layer bite. of, yeah, absolutely. A tomato, a cucumber, you know. Right. As opposed to cutting a steak, which, you know, just a blunt yeah, short you, you spork could, would probably right. do the trick. <laughs> you could just, yeah, any, right. any object. What is something you learned the hard way, but you're glad you learned it the hard way? Like that was kind of the only way to learn it. Great question. Boy, oh boy. So the answer might be a simple one. It might be animation. I'm going to broaden that art in general. I was just not very good for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and when I uh, explain that to my students, when I say your early work is this much better than my early work, therefore your late work yeah. can and probably should be this much better than my late work. I, uh, I was very much jack of all trades, spending a lot of time with a lot of different subjects, trying to decide exactly what I wanted to pursue personally. That's been okay. It's, it's given me quite yeah. a broad set of skills that allows me to say yes to a lot of projects and actually know what I'm doing. But when it comes to any single aspect of it, animation is just such a, a, a discipline that I didn't fully appreciate until I made a lot of bad animation. Yeah. And I don't know if you can correct me here. Were you a natural animator? Is there such a thing? I was not a natural animator. And I think actually what you just said made me think about one of the biggest things I got from going to school. And I, I went to a four-year BFA program, but I think you would get this from any kind of in-person educational environment. I grew up in a small town. I wasn't the best artist in my high school class, but I was the only artist who was really, really into drawing comics and yes. making animation in right. my spare time. So in the in the context of Wayland High School class of 2004, I was, I might as well have been. You were um, a pretty big deal. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I was basically all nine old men of Wayland, That's right. Massachusetts. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, inside animation joke. If you don't get it, don't worry about it, folks. It's okay. But when I got to college, I went from being a big fish in a small pond to being, um, I would say, a medium fish in a large pond. I was surrounded by all these other people who had better skills than me. And it wasn't enough that I could just make pictures move. Right. Like, I I had to step it up. That's it, right. It actually took me a year or two to internalize that. And, and it took some really great teachers and some really wonderful peers yeah. to push me towards like, hey, if you, it's okay if you don't, but if you really care about this art form, right. you should be striving to get better and better and better at this art form. Exactly like yeah. you, I've, I've been there and yeah. I've also seen it in students as well. And yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Going back to the teaching, you know, part of our conversation, being able to relate to something like that, you know, is, is going to maybe save them some time. And going back to the what did I learn the hard way that maybe they could learn a slightly easier way yeah. question. Maybe you can spare them some of that, you know, right. the, the lost time, because if they're not, if they're going to be in that class and eventually pursue the subject, might as well make use of, of the time and the opportunity. Yeah. The final lightning round question okay. um, before we wrap up, what is your favorite thing to do that has nothing to do with animation or teaching or any of your other professional or artistic pursuits, I guess. I think you know the answer. Yep. Spending time with your kids. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. 
holy hell i mean it's just uh she thinks i'm funny she thinks i'm smart you know it's it's really easy to yeah. uh, to feel really good about yourself when you're dealing with someone who doesn't know anything about anything she's like right. the greatest student you know she's yeah. just a total blank slate yeah and i can blab at her forever but actually if i could describe it a little more sincerely than that it would be um that everything that i thought i knew about life changed mm. um, I, I was fundamentally transformed when when she showed up yeah and you hear parents who are like well you know, you'll never know until you deal with it right. yourself and uh <laughs> as obnoxious as that is to right. hear it's true that's true and um as cheesy as it is to say it's true um if i could live a life of extravagance and overindulgence or like i said just like play with a cardboard box yeah with my kid no brainer right yeah right so um i don't know that's probably a boring answer so no it's not the other option number two though would be a <laughs> life of decadence and overindulgence like way too much pizza um oh you know, man yeah yeah I ivory back scratcher that's an old simpsons wow. joke too. oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think mr burns had an ivory right, back right. scratch and you know scrooge mcduck into my giant what did he have a swimming pool of yeah of gold coins. it was kind of like in a tower it was think, yeah that's what i'm trying then, to remember yeah. it was a vault i think right, is the word we're looking right. for and um somebody uh sort of just did a a very superficial analysis of that and uh, it was pretty obvious gold coins are not a fluid and right, you'd right. break your neck pretty quickly yeah doesn't yeah. he also he like sort of i mean this is i think what we're we're not complaining this is what we love about animation yeah doesn't he sort of spit blah, 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 blah. yes which, which for there's two layers to that one in real life outside of maybe children like at each other nobody in real life goes into a swimming pool does the backstroke while spitting a fountain of water out it's true so that's layer number one and then ducktales <laughs> took that and did that with coins so that that's like to me a beautiful intertextual play there of like you first have to understand the cartoon gag of spitting water from maybe years earlier, and then you understand the gold on top of that. My third favorite thing to do is exactly this sort of thing. What a ridiculous fun <laughs> point you just made. All art forms, but animation in particular, it's uh, you have to have a little trust in your audience mm -hmm. to understand that they'll understand and to, to always have to be literal and to always have to explain everything really just kind of strips the piece of, yeah. of something. And, and kids' cartoons in their heyday, if you look back, I bet you'll find a lot more things just like that yeah. that can be understood uh, on some level by all members of the audience. I'm so fascinated by things that, it's almost a linguistic thing. Like before, I don't know, whenever they started making like sort of the theatrical cartoons, before around 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. an anvil was just one of many tools used in, I want to say welding, <laughs> yes. metal work, you know? Yeah, metallurgy. Yeah. yeah. And then like how words change meaning over time. Now I would say the common definition of an anvil is a thing that gets dropped on someone's head <laughs> absolutely and and i think that's so and i'm sure it was chosen by those animators as just like well what's a heavy thing that would hurt a lot uh anvils mm -hmm. and but it, i i'm i'm fascinated by things like that with cartoons We're likewise like, but there's probably a million things like that but you're so right and um the history of animation and you know it uh, having its birth in a time that long preceded us where technology was completely different yeah there are these kind of legacy gags that yeah. have very little relevance today and yet are as hilarious as ever and you're right have completely changed the definition of what an anvil right. is what it was ever for can i um can i dork out a little bit Please. about what 
hooked me for animation. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. it was the first movie I had ever been brought to uh, to see in theaters. Oh wow! I think okay. I was three or four. From that day, I was hooked. And yeah. So I was I was studying the animation. I was writing down what color um, changes were happening when Roger took a shot of whiskey and was up on the oh, ceiling. Oh wow! Yeah. You know, and just kind of trying to understand what they were doing. Shortly thereafter, I remember looking at the large Marge scene from Pee Wee Herman, just frame by frame, mm. to see when she went from her to it and then back. And you know, I, I was just kind. Of before I even knew what animation was, right. I was curious how they did these things. It's like wanting to know how a magician does their tricks. <laughs> I, I suppose, in a way, yeah. When did he pull that card out? Exactly. You know? I love that. And yeah, I, I think, oh God, Who Framed Roger Rabbit's just so good. I, I think about it all the time. Same. Um, one thing that it, all this also makes me think of that I like to dork out about is like um, this legacy of like a lot of the old. Also, even newer stuff, I say newer, it's now like 35 years old, but like <laughs> Simpsons character, a lot of these cartoon characters are based on like 1930s and 40s comedians. Like, it's true. There's a specific joke in an old cartoon that once I learned what it was referring to from the time, it became less funny to me. When I didn't know what it was referring to, it got more funny. It's like the joke aged better when we lost the reference. So it's, it's a joke, I, I want to say... It's a droopy dog cartoon. Mm -hmm. It's one of those or something MGM world. It's some sort of Halloween or like spooky cartoon or something. It's like a haunted house and a character opens a door and like um, three skeletons come out. And the first two, it's already funny to me Mm -hmm. because the first two skeletons are like, I think kind of, I may be butchering this, but they're kind of polite. They're like skeleton. Like they say they're skeletons. That's already funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then the third skeleton is red and in a funny voice, it just goes, Red Skeleton, which ah, I think. Right. So when I first saw that for years, until maybe like five years ago, mm-hmm. I didn't know that there was a comedian right. who talked like that named, I think, Red Skeleton. And that skeleton was doing a weird voice because he, that's how that comedian talked. And it was a pun. But to me, the joke was, which I think is a funnier joke, was that there's two skeletons. And this one's red and loud. Yeah. This one's red and has a weird voice, <laughs> right? <laughs> to me, that's funnier than just like a pun on a guy's name. It's really true. Uh, and there's something to be said about, you know, sometimes underestimating young mm-hmm. people, sometimes, you know, um, being a little too worried about a multi-layered joke like that. Yeah. Because if it's outside of their knowledge, it's not necessarily right. going to harm them. When I was a kid, I don't know if I was unique in this, but I imagine I wasn't. I actually loved jokes that were a little over my head. That's what I mean. Just over because I liked the mystery of it. That's I right. liked putting it together being like, I think to an adult they like get it because there's some celebrity who did that. Right. Or but trying to figure it out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I liked the mystery of the joke. Yeah, you were curious. Uh, absolutely. And you knew that you didn't know something. Mm-hmm. And so you're sort of reverse engineering at that point. You're, you, you've got all the parts. Yeah. You understand that it is funny. Right. But you need to assemble it in a way or, or maybe find some missing... Key. Right. And so there's an art form in itself to creating those multi layered jokes. And sometimes to the kid, it's just hilarious on its face. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. We just, we just took our nephew to see uh, Minions. Yes. <laughs> which, like, it was a good kids' movie. Mm-hmm. And, but it took place in the 70s, which, like, our four year old nephew, he doesn't know what the 70s are. Right. All right. Well, why don't we wrap it up? Uh, Anthony, if people want to know what you're up to, what Pixels and Polygons are up to, maybe they want to take some classes. Awesome. Maybe they just want to um, follow you, learn more about you. 
where can you direct people on the internet or Absolutely. real life? Yes. So in real life, we're in the greater Boston area. We're in uh, right on the Waltham Newton line. And um, we can be found online at pixelsandpolygons.org. There's a little bit of activity on our social media. I could be better about that. Um, but can't, yes, can't we all be better yeah, about true. that? But uh, on either Facebook or Instagram, you can uh, search for pixels and polygons. Um, the exact URLs are facebook.com slash pixels polygons. I don't know our Instagram off the top of my head, but it's uh, the Pixels and Polygon School. Cool. So, um, yep, you can catch what we're up to. And I, I'll say as someone who's uh, followed Pixels and Polygon since I've met you uh, years ago and have seen a lot of student work, it's, it's just so impressive. And I, I like, I really admire not only what you do, but your mission. It's, it's just something that you bring all of my incoherent bar ranting about how, how much better um, animation education could be. You, you take that not from me, from your own heart, and you you implement it. So I'm really impressed. It means so much uh, for you to say that. I really do appreciate it very sincerely. And likewise, uh, everything I've known about you is only solidified in our in our chat today. You're a badass, and I want you to keep up the good work. And I want you to know a thought that crossed my mind earlier, which was that if you were a lunatic ranting at a bar, I bet it would be a very nice bar. Oh, thank yeah, you. And you'd That's... be drinking something fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should go have a drink. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. This <laughs> was right. a blast. Yeah. Likewise. Talk soon. I hope so. All right. Thank you again to Anthony Marquette for speaking with me and being my friend. I hope. Thank you to you for listening. Thanks to everyone who sends me nice messages, who DMs, who shares, who subscribes, who rates, who reviews, all that good stuff. It's really, really helpful to me as a new podcast. Thank you to Adam Salzberg for mixing this episode and getting it to your ears. And the theme song is by Typist, Adam's solo project, which you should definitely check out. We'll be back next week with episode 10. And for episode 10, we're doing a really special episode. It's called We Love Your Conversation, where we are reading, and by we, I mean myself and a super secret guest co-host. We're reading what you're all going through, and we might answer some questions and give some advice as well. So do not forget to check that out in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye.